it's fascinating how we as a small community seem to know so much about each other. And uh, you can't do that in a webinar. You know, that's the power of uh, seeing people's faces, being able to interact with people and having a question or whatever. Today, uh, the topic is paradox of worship. We left off last week saying that God actually asked Pharaoh to let his people go so that they may worship him. That was a reason. During the week, I received this email and I feel that it is worth sharing with you. Thanks for yesterday's Bible study starts this email. I have an additional thought about shame. In context of what you were saying about repentance, I appreciate your thoughts. But in, in relation to care, support, listening, understanding people, I think there is also another aspect to that is important. You remember I mentioned about shame last week. I said the same theme comes in. So this email is a comment on that. I felt it was so good. I'm just going to continue to read it. Hard to summarize in email, but here goes. Guilt is uh, feeling in relation to having done or said something wrong or bad or not having done or said something it would be good to have said or done. It can be either God-given gift of guilt that helps us to recognize, improve next time, repent, or it can be guilt as a problem, such as a person taking on responsibility at extreme, could be even psychosis. Believing self to be to blame for war, COVID, etc., or when one person in family is to be blamed for family uh, dysfunction and comes to accept guilt. I know there is a lot of stuff here, but the reason why I'm wanting to read it is I want to look at uh, what I shared last week from a completely different angle, which is what this email is all about, and I completely overlooked it. In relation to thinking about guilt and negative feelings about self, guilt is when we feel bad for saying doing something wrong. Shame is when we feel bad simply for being, such as feeling ashamed for being born girl or black or gay or whatever family or community devalues and stigmatizes. And as you know, in level one, week seven, we look at stigma and prejudice in a big way and the whole concept of being shamed and shaming and suffering from shame. What you said about shame, needing repentance is important, but I feel it needs to be said carefully, cautiously to ensure that anyone feeling shame, in a sense I have typed about, does not feel responsible and wonder how to repent because it is not their fault. So how can they repent? It is who they are. So how can a person who is born black feeling shamed or feeling shame either way, uh, repent about it because there's nothing they can do. So what I have said last week might put them in a bind and even put them in a situation where they can't get out, which would make them feel even worse about themselves. And just as important is that those who devalue, stigmatize, need to understand what they are doing. And that when someone hits back, gets angry, etc., he may be doing so as a way of trying to express feelings. 
And instead of responding with, for example, these Dalits or these outcasts or these black people or whatever are always causing trouble, they should think, what is it that I am doing that gives them no choice but to protest, march with banners and whatever? In my words, such as Black Lives Matter and all that sort of things. Hope that makes some sense. I should have clarified that the shame theme, that was a phrase I used, the shame theme. The Hebrews in the wilderness comes up with the shame theme again. That's how I said it. The shame theme I referred to last week was exclusively in the context of the Hebrews after their liberation from Egypt. They resorted to a particular pattern of behavior, which I called the shame theme. The pattern is as follows. One, they rebel against God or disregard God's directions. And that's the beginning of the cycle, the pattern. Two, they suffer the consequences of their actions. For instance, they will say, we have no food. And they whinge in wine and then God gives them some food. Or they say, oh, we don't like this food. Then uh, the serpents come and bite them and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, or then they have a plague, then they all get diarrhea or dysentery or something. You know, this sort of thing happens. They suffer the consequences of their actions. For example, they suffer from some form of epidemic, disease, snake bites, etc. Or they suffer defeat at the hands of their enemies. Often these events were interpreted as, that's the third part of this pattern, often these events were interpreted as punishment by God, or God abandoning them without protecting them. Fourth point in this pattern of the shame theme, they accuse God of abandoning them as if what happened was God's fault. And the fifth part in this shame theme pattern is the final stage. If you don't protect us, other nations will laugh at you. Your glory depends on our success. Conversely, when we fail, you will be shamed. So make sure we win and succeed no matter what. So this is a kind of a blackmailing God saying, if we lose, you lose because your glory depends on us winning, us succeeding. So if we don't succeed, if we lose our battle, well, it's shame on you, God, sort of thing. So this is a shame theme I was referring to. What I said about shame last week only applies when this shame mechanism is activated, not in every situation. Interestingly, there are people who have chosen to adopt this pattern rather than accept responsibility for their actions. The Crusades of long ago and the evangelistic triumphalism of the evangelicals today are not bad examples for this unhealthy logic. God, if we do not win, you lose. If you let us suffer shame, you will be shamed. What will you do for your name and glory then? When I suffer shame for my own wrongdoing, the appropriate response is to own the transgression, repent, come clean, and produce the fruit that befits repentance. That is when I suffer shame for my own wrongdoing. Many Christian leaders, both great and small, would not have regressed so far in their sin 
whether it be mismanagement of finance, misconduct in sexual relationships, or abuse of power, had the people around them who knew what they were doing, instead of covering up their wrongdoing, had corrected them and made them accountable. Instead, these subservient, self-seeking leadership teams, more often than not, covered up the wrongdoing for the honor of God. The covering up of child abuse, gross financial dishonesty and sexual abuse by priests, clergy and pastors are clear evidence that we have adopted the shame theme of the Hebrews in the wilderness. It is almost as if we are echoing the Hebrews. Lord, if these great leaders are exposed, it will bring shame for your great name. Our dishonorable behavior does not bring glory to God, no matter how we interpret it. Personal, collective, private, and public repentance is the way forward in these situations. Freedom from slavery. In broad terms, the Bible speaks of two slaveries. In broad terms, the Bible speaks of two slaveries. One, slavery to sin. Two, slavery of human bondage. Social, political, economic, and so on. Both involves oppression and submission. We must be liberated from both. Freedom from the slavery of sin is experienced in the context of the worship of the true God. This is where Cain went wrong. He wanted to experience freedom through violence rather than the freedom of worship. That's when God said to him, Will you not be accepted if you do well, if you do what is right? So the true freedom that we experience is the freedom in worship. The second is worship sets us free from our natural tendency to to violence. When we worship, we become less violent. And I think that is true about people who truly worship God. We are only as free as the object of our worship. The early church was predominantly comprised of slaves of many nations in the Roman Empire, but lived as free people because they worshipped the true God. In fact, the church spread or the message of the gospel spread in the Roman Empire, not through necessarily the great preachers like Paul or Peter or other people. It was through the slaves who worked in Roman homes, the girls who whispered the gospel. In fact, they murmured the gospel to their mistresses and their mistresses influenced their sons and husbands. It was Constantine's mother who was a Christian and possibly converted, uh, came to salvation through a slave girl who worked in her home, who was a Christian. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, that they may hold a festival for me, in the wilderness. Moses' first request to Pharaoh was for the Hebrews to have three days to go and worship Yahweh in Exodus 5.3. We may think it was a trick, and I have read a fair bit 
on the net that says it was God deceiving, trying to deceive the Pharaoh or deceiving Pharaoh. We may think it was a trick. Not so. God was intending to shape a people for himself out of a group of slaves. That they may worship me could be understood as that they may get to know me. He believed that they could not be a people of God unless they knew who their God is. So it was a preparation for a relationship. It was a bit like courting, you know, a man and a woman going out together, getting to know each other, talking to each other, finding out who is this other person. A people who do not have a right relationship with their God will not understand right worship. Consequently, they will not understand true freedom. Unfortunately for the Hebrew slaves, their freedom from their physical bondage came before their freedom from their spiritual bondage. They experienced the blessings of God before they entered into a relationship with God. They experienced freedom from physical bondage, but they never became a truly worshipping community. This we looked at at length in our previous devotions where we said that they were not really a coherent Yahweh worshippers. They just adopted whatever they could. And even Aaron the high priest did not understand who Yahweh was. Moses did. He had a personal relationship with this God. And that personal relationship powerfully influenced his life and made him the person he was. To the point that he would say to God, I am not interested in going to the promised land if you are not coming with us. Now, that is relationship. That is powerful relationship. When God said, you want to go to the promised land? You know, this is Exodus chapter 33. We read that some time ago. You know, I will send an angel to go with you, but I am not going because if I go, I will destroy these people. And Moses says to God, no, I'm not going if you are not coming with us. Promised land is nothing without the promise of God and the God of the promise. I think that is the important thing. What is the point in having the promise of God if we do not have the presence of the God of promise? It is a God of promise that we seek rather than the promise of God. It's very important to understand that. They experienced freedom from physical bondage, but they never became a truly worshipping community. Learning from Pharaoh's error. Throughout the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, it is clear that the reason for the plagues was not the destruction of Egypt. There are many, many theologians and biblical interpreters and preachers who keep on harping that God punished Pharaoh and God wanted to destroy him. And they quote from Romans chapter 9, where there is this throwaway line, and I have written 85 pages on it, where it says, I have raised you up for this reason, as if the only reason why God raised Pharaoh up was to destroy him. No wonder a person like David Attenborough would say, you Christians, you look at a beautiful flower and say, what an amazing creation of God. But you have never looked at this worm. The only purpose of this worm in Africa, that is found in Africa, is to burrow into the back of your eyes and eat your eyes out and make you blind. That is the only thing it does in life. 
Tell me about the God of the creation of this Bible, says David Attenborough. You see, that is a problem if we take a verse like, I have raised you for this purpose and say, God raised Pharaoh up to punish him. No, God did not. God doesn't bring anybody into the world to send them to hell. That is not God's purpose. Throughout the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, it is clear that the reason for the plagues was not the destruction of Egypt, but so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would come to recognize Yahweh, so that they may know me. That is the reason. It was not a demonstration of power. It is exactly the same as what St. John says in the fourth gospel. These are signs. They are not the power of God being demonstrated, though the, the synoptic gospels, the other three gospels would say it is a power of God, the dynamis of God. But in John's gospel, they are signs of the presence of the kingdom. You know, when a blind man sees, it is a sign that the kingdom of God is present. When Jesus fed the 5,000, it was a semeon. It was a sign that the kingdom of God is present. It was not a demonstration of God's amazing power. He was not throwing his weight around. It was a convincing proof. And towards the end of his gospel, John says, these things are written that you may believe. So the 10 plagues that we see, you may say 10 plagues, how destructive were they? The 10 plagues were a message to a rebellious king to say, mate, that's Australian, you know, you have to repent and get to know me. So that, that's exactly what the scripture says, so that the Egyptians may believe. That was the purpose of the plagues, that they may also worship the one true God of the universe, as acknowledged by the woman on the wall of Jericho. But to the detriment of the Pharaoh, he considered himself as a god and interpreted the plagues as a power struggle between the god of the Hebrews and him. For the Pharaoh, true worship was his subjects serving him. That is worship. When all his people are serving him, then that is worship. For him, that's how he understood worship. Serving means physical labor. His subjects must show their loyalty to him by their hard labor. So the Pharaoh interpreted, interpreted Moses' request for worship as an excuse for laziness. The Pharaoh said, we read in the scripture, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. He see it as rebellion. I have heard the same said in many Christian communities by well-meaning Christians. I haven't got time for the luxury of worship, they say, when people are dying. I haven't got time for the luxury of worship when people are dying. Or a hungry person needs food, not faith. Worship is embedded into everything that we are and do. Worship and work may be one for some people. I have heard that. Worship and work must be one. Worship and work may be one for some people, but we should not ignore the truth that worship is not work and work is not worship, but they both must be done. So there is a hymn in our hymn book at Velo CMC that said worship and work must be done. It was in response to the other saying that worship and work must be one. They are not one. Worship is worship 
work is work. But when we offer our work as worship to God, then it is worship. Otherwise, it is not. A worship is what we offer to God. So worship and work must be done. And if it is one, praise the Lord, provided it is an act of surrender to God and worship to God. So that's something we need to learn from Pharaoh's era. Second, learning from the Hebrews' era. Freedom from physical slavery without experiencing the freedom of worship can be detrimental to our relationship with the object of worship, Yahweh, God. The hardship before their liberation and after would have been a great opportunity for them to get to know their God. Instead, the misfortunes and calamities of their life made them suspicious of God's intentions. What did they say? He is bringing us out into this vulnerable wilderness to destroy us. They never understood the heart of God. For many, many Christians who are born again or claim to be born again, their relationship with God is a burden rather than a journey of joy. Why? Because they, they see God as a taskmaster rather than a friend who travels with them. Doubt and character. Instead of learning and getting into a relationship, they doubted the character of God, His goodness. They could not believe that God is good. They doubted the character of God and the power of God. Rabbi Krishna wrote a book. He's um, a Jewish rabbi. Uh, when bad things happen to good people. It's worth a read, but I do feel sorry for rabbi. Being a Jew... He could not doubt the goodness of God. But at the same time, when his own son tragically died, he had to ask these questions. And through the difficulties, he came to the conclusion. He concluded that God is good, but not powerful enough to carry out his good intentions. And that's how he interpreted it. God is good, but not powerful enough to carry out his good intentions. When difficulties come into our life, when we are confronted by problems, what is our understanding of God? I love the hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. Very easy to say when everything is going well. All other ground is sinking sand. I love the affirmation and confession of Peter in John's Gospel, chapter 7 or 8, where Jesus said, Do you also want to go away? Because many of his disciples left him, saying, This is a hard saying. And Peter, the champion of faith, says, Where can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Son of God, the Messiah. And the order is exactly like that. Where can we go? We are, in fact, desperate people. If there was another place equally good or better, we would have gone there. And then he says, We have believed and have come to know not have come to know and believed. And this is why I don't like that little children's book that says facts, faith, and something else and something. You know that little train diagram? You know, little train with the engine, the fact, and then you have uh, uh, the fuel, the faith, and something else. I say nonsense. Who do you think you are to think that you can know God enough to trust Him? No, we don't believe in Him by knowing, but we get to know Him by believing. Faith comes first. We believe. We put our trust. That's why I'm in love with Peter. 
Peter says, what you have just said, Jesus doesn't make sense. That's when he said, throw your net to the right side and you will have a great catch. They said, we have toiled all night. What you have just said doesn't make any sense at all because we have toiled all night. But at your word, you know, that is the power of it. It is you that makes sense. What you have just said don't make sense because I'm a fisherman. I know this sea at the back of my hand. I know there is no fish right now here. But you make sense. That is a relationship. That is what the people of Israel did not have because they didn't have time to or the opportunity to or take the trouble to get to know this God. This was a mistake of Cain when God said, Son, why is your face cast down? Don't you think your countenance will be lifted up if you do what is right? What is right is to come to me in worship. That is what is right. Offer your life in worship. That is what is right. Everything you do, everything you are, must become a worship. And then it is your life is sanctified. No matter how filthy it is, it is still sanctified. You may not think it is wonderful, but it is still sanctified. And then you hear the words of God to Saint Peter, who said, Peter, arise and eat. And Peter said, but this is all unholy animals. He said, no, what God has sanctified, you don't call unholy. Nothing is unholy when I have declared it holy. That is my job, not yours, to decide who is going to hell and who is going to heaven. It is my job to decide who is unholy and who is holy. You don't decide that. What I have sanctified, don't ever say unholy ever again. Arise and go. There are people waiting for you. What a wonderful thing that Peter obeyed and the world opened up for the gospel. And this is what happens when we believe and look at God. They doubted the character of God. Third, they became insecure after their liberation than during their slavery. Sometimes there is a kind of security, a false security in living in sin, in being a slave to sin, to our habits. The devil we know as if they became insecure. They began to doubt their freedom. In fact, they wondered, are we truly free? I don't know why they didn't pinch themselves occasionally to see whether they are free. I was telling someone the other day that the last few months, periodically, I get nightmares. My nightmares are very simple, but horrendous. I wake up with cold sweat. My pillow is wet. I have to turn it over. So I'm not lying in, 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 in a pool of sweat. My nightmare is I have to travel in two days time. That is my nightmare. Just the thought of going to an airport. Just the thought of standing in line to catch another flight. Just the thought of sitting in a taxi somewhere in India. It just drives me mad. I hope, I, I, I sincerely hope that I don't have to travel internationally ever again. I had one about three days ago. As if I have to pack my bags because I'm traveling again in two days. Because, you know, you don't believe that you are free from travel. Though <laughs> I've been traveled for eight months <laughs> and I've been sitting in this room all day. You know, just the fear of traveling has possessed me. 
And I think the children of Israel, though they were liberated, they still were having nightmares about Pharaoh. What did God mean when he demanded Pharaoh to let the people go to worship? That they may become a people who recognize the nature of their existence in three dimensions. That they may recognize the nature of their existence as a called out community. The Hebrew word is kwahel. And the Greek word is ekklesia, ekklesia, called out. Kelio means call, ek meaning exit, ek out, ekkelio, the gathered community. That they are a gathered community and God is the one who gathers them. They are a called out community. They are an example in contrast, not an example like, but an example different, an example in contrast. The first fruit of God's rule and his kingdom. This is what they were. And they had to recognize it, but they couldn't because their slave mentality continued to overrule. They did not get to know this God and they did not understand Moses. And Moses understood and he could say, no, I'm not going to the Holy Land without you. What is a Holy Land without the Holy God? He knew that. You know, what I possess is not a land. What I possess is a relationship with God. The second thing they needed to recognize was that they are a set-apart community, a community shaped according to the character and will of God. That is what it means to be set-apart, holy to God. Holy means set-apart. Very little to do with ethical uprightness. It is to do with a state of being set-apart for God. The third thing they needed to understand and accept is that they are a sent out community. They are a witnessing community. This is where their shame theme went wrong. They thought witness means they succeed, they do well, doesn't matter what they do, God makes them great. And that was their witness. But that is not what God had in mind. A community that would be a light to the nations. A community that would proclaim the goodness of the Lord. And this was their mission. So they were a, a called out community an Ekkelio community, a Quaheld community. They are a set-apart community, a community shaped according to the character of God. They were being transformed into the image of God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, be transformed. Or we have the same theme coming in Hebrews chapter 12 as well. Lay aside every sin and weight that clings so closely and run the race with God. A people who are being transformed. Thirdly, a people with a mission, a sent out community, to be a light to the nation, to proclaim the goodness of the Lord. But they instead turned all that into a shame theme. That is, if you allow us to fail, then it is a shame on you. It wasn't like that at all. God gets glory even in our failures. And Apostle Paul understood that. And no wonder he said, this treasure is in jars of clay. This treasure is in jars of clay. But they wanted rubbish in golden pots. That was the reversal. But it was the treasure that you should be focusing on, not the pot. And that's the beauty of it. I found something quite fascinating, but uh, we don't have time to look at it, though. Yeah, no, I think I'll leave it. It's very interesting. This verse seems to refer that God marched, it says, when you, Lord, went out from Seir, 
when you marched from the land of Edom. This is a song of Deborah in Judges. When you marched from the land of Edom. Which is the land of Edom? Where did God come from? That's what it says. When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom. Hey, the bad guy is the one God was living with. The bad guy is the one God was living with. We talk about the God of Jacob. Deborah, the judge, she sings and says, God was actually living with Edom, the descendants of Esau. I love the way Jacob, in a moment of weakness, recognized this truth and says to his brother at the reunion, Brother, when I look at you, I see the face of God. Yeah, he said that. You know why? How did he know the face of God? Because the morning of that day, he was fighting with God. He was wrestling with God. He saw God face to face. And then he comes to his brother, whom he feared, and gone through all the treachery of putting everything he liked the least in front, and finally last himself, because he loved himself so much. But Esau says, brother, I don't need anything. God has blessed me. What are you worried about? God is an amazing God. God has blessed me. You only took my birthright, but you didn't take my God. I still have my God. And Jacob looks at him and says, when I look at you, I see the face of God. What an amazing statement, even for a cunning, crooked man like Jacob to say. Like the Pharaoh and the Hebrews, we were a rebellious, untrusting people who need to be ambushed by God, being ambushed by God. Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you like to do a study on how to be ambushed by God? I love to be ambushed by God. Learning from the life of Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were arrested just because they tried to help a helpless girl. You know the story. They were stripped naked, severely beaten up, dragged along the streets and thrown into a dungeon. In jail, they started singing praises to God. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Now, I want you to be surprised. Okay, the Bible verse is very simple. They were singing and praising God. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once, the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Why was everyone free? They didn't pray. In fact, they may have been abusing Paul and Silas saying, why don't you shut up? It's the middle of the night. Can't we at least have a bit of peace and quiet in a jail? You see, when we praise, when we worship God, it's not just us who experience the freedom. It's fascinating that it was not just Paul and Silas who were liberated. When we worship, we become a means of blessing even to the unbelieving. Notice how it says everybody's chains came loose. Not just the chains of Paul and Silas, but all the prisoners. Notice how the scripture says all the prison doors flew open. Not just the doors of the prison cells where Paul and Silas were confined. It is possible that some of the prisoners may have been praising and singing with Paul and Silas. But it is also possible that there would have been some who did not like them at all and asked them to keep quiet. However, when the chains came off, it came off 
every one of them. They were all free. There was just one person still in his own prison, the jailer. He was locked up in his fear of all that had gone wrong and all that could go wrong. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Due to Paul's timely intervention, soon he learned the meaning of worship because he said, Masters, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas taught him the secret of worship. We must be careful not to develop a theory out of one special event. We know that in the case of Peter and John, they were set free from the jail and only their chains came off, not everyone's. No one else was liberated with them. It was a quiet and subversive activity that no one knew what was going on. Even Peter seemed to have been in a trance as he came out of the prison door, didn't even know he was outside the prison door. So I'm not saying that there is always a pattern, but I felt that Acts chapter 16, there was something that we need to look at. How every prisoner had their chains fall off. Yet we cannot ignore the truth that we are set free from our many chains when we worship. Worship liberates us to rejoice even in the freedom of those whom we may not like and those who may not like us. That is when we know that we are truly worshipping. That is when we get ambushed by God. So, what does it mean to be ambushed by God? Psalm 73 is a fantastic psalm. I like all psalms of Asaph. Asaph was someone who really, really knew God's heart and human life. He says, Psalm 73, verse 2 and 3. But as for me, I love it. I love the imagery. I love the picture here. As for me, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I look at the Crown Casino and think, why can't I be like that? Crown Casino is a gambling place in Melbourne, by the way, if you're wondering. I love the imagery. Listen to this. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So we ask the question, I had nearly lost my foothold. Why did I almost lose my foothold? Well, he gives the answer. One, I envied the arrogant. When I looked at the arrogant, I see how well they do. This was the same dilemma that we see with other prophets like Habakkuk. Second, I was intimidated by the prosperity of the wicked. You know, we are so tempted when we look at politicians, powerful men, doesn't matter which country, they are everywhere. And we think, wow, we feel intimidated by the prosperity. How powerful they are, yet they are so wicked. What are the areas where I am more inclined to losing my foothold today? It's a good question to ask for each of us. What are the areas where I'm likely to lose my foothold today? Where I'm likely to almost slip and fall? We all have our slippery slopes. 
in the areas of achievement and success, my inability to rejoice in the success of others? What are those areas? We must let God to ambush us into worship when we are disappointed. As we look around, when we feel disappointed, we must simply allow God to ambush us into worship. When we feel disappointed, we develop a victim mentality, as if the whole world is against us. The victim mentality never changes anyone. It just gives a sense of false security. The antidote to self-pity is to join in a worship song with the prophet Habakkuk. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crops fail, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Saviour. Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. We must let God ambush us into worship when we are afraid. So first, we must allow God to ambush us into worship when we are disappointed. We must also let God ambush us into worship when we are afraid. There are many things that most of us are afraid of. There are those who are afraid of missing out on what could have been rightfully theirs. There is also the fear of letting go. So we keep grabbing and holding on instead of experiencing the freedom of letting go. There is a fear of bad people who may take away what we have or may do harm to us. When we do not worship, we become anxious. Lack of gratitude, bitterness, envy and unhappiness are all part of not worshipping God. Worship gives perspective to our troubled minds. It gives us a wider look rather than just one narrow focus. Secondly, worship reveals the true nature of my heart. Third, worship enables me to remember and reflect. Look at the past and think about God's ways with my life. Number four, worship shows me that God is with me no matter what. Doesn't matter what I go through, God is with me. We don't wait to be transformed to start worship. Instead, we are transformed as we worship. As we worship, we are being changed. When we worship, the crouching sin at my door remains exactly where it is, exactly where it is chained to the doorpost. It has no power over me. Remember what God said to Cain, the sin crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. You must master it. How do you master it? When you do what is right. What is right? What is what is right? It's true worship. Remember, when we talk about God, we don't understand. When we talk with God, everything is clear. When we talk about God, we don't understand. When we talk with God, everything is clear. When we worship, we see God as He truly is. I love to be ambushed by God. I usually obey God kicking and screaming. Well, that is my story. I am ever grateful to my God who regularly ambushes me. True worship is the opposite of slavery. It is a desire to encounter God that we may see us 
as we truly are. It is a desire to delight in God that we may experience true freedom. It is a desire to do God's will that we may fulfill the purpose of our lives. Thank you again for being here with me and may God bless you.